There's a lot of carpeting in the Dune universe that I like. A lot of fringe cushions. They've been watching Dune. You're talking about the David so. Lynch one, right? Because Both. the no, the fucking no, the new one has a shit. I feel of like carpet. everything had like bougie-ass poured concrete floors. Like <laughs> no, there were a lot. Again, I was watching specifically for upholstery because I am mm-hmm. a big fan of. That's right, gay space communism. Everyone, everybody's favorite leftist <laughs> Star Trek debacle. Yes, of course. <laughs> we are traversing across the galaxy here, there, everywhere. Every single everywhere. part of Dune specifically, and David Lynch specifically, and carpets all of these suggest gay space communism <laughs> i don't know if there's a better three things to put on the flag but we can work that out with the soviet uh of <laughs> course i am paul byron and i am joined with well what would be an alphabet is still probably an alphabetical order although we're currently missing our top of the roster no so. i'm going first today i'm rachel oh shit no take that the Bible. you're changing everything the spice <laughs> made me see the future and i get to go first <laughs> well, technically second, but yes, I agree. But they getting it, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Look, they banned math too, all right? I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> so that was Rachel. I'm Corey. I'm Corey. Nice to be here with you all. And uh, it's it's time to, like, I mean, we're just going to kick right off because then transition clean into what we've been watching lately. And yeah, for me, it's been the double dose of David Lynch's Dune versus the new uh, David Villeneuve's Dune, which I, I think is really good. I, I enjoyed it. I feel like I've been saying Harkonnen wrong for 20 years, which may be my fault for not looking it up ever. Uh, that being said, it's a weird book to make a movie from. I think they did a good job. I love this carpets. You would, Why would you take carpets to the desert? They're going to be full of sand. You got to get some kind of crazy space. Where the fuck do you think Persian rugs come from, dude? <laughs> well, Persia, but that does that doesn't exist anymore. Neither and Arrakis will soon. I feel like this. I don't know, but hey, I thought it was really pretty. Fair, it's really Persia good. Persia is not entirely deserts either, but still. Uh, and, yeah. uh, you know, I'm going to leave, I mean, it's a 60-year-old book, so it's not that big of a spoiler thing, but it's very nice. I thought it was really pretty. It was weird when they ended it with the woman looking directly at the camera saying, we would like to make a sequel to this movie. Please let us do that. But then they did. So the <laughs> second one, part two has been greenlit. It's been fun. Uh, not enough eyebrows really is my only complaint. Not enough eyebrows? Like like a makeup choice? Uh, the Mentats. They, they took the eyebrows off the Mentats, and I don't care for it, and they took away the dog. Okay. That being said, there is a bag pipe, which makes Dune canonical Star Trek. Okay. What? From Star Trek 2. Okay, how does the bagpipe make Dune canonically Star Trek and not Patrick fucking Stewart being in the David Lynch version? Oh, that one also, but both of them are for different reasons, because there's no Patrick Stewart and there's no Pug in the new one. God, that is true. But that being said, they're both very good. I think they do a great job with their lavishness. I think they could have stood to build more shit for the new one, but that's just the way movies are made now. His time in the David David Lynch Dune predated his uh, Next Generation yes. run, didn't it? Yeah, it that's did. Right. Like a couple it of years. It sure yeah. did. Yeah. Yeah. Also, frankly, they wildly underutilized him. Yeah. So dystopian hellscape, and then he was like, "Fuck this! I'm going to go do some gay space communism on Star Trek." He actually didn't want to do Star Trek either. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, you're right. I assume David Lynch's Dune is how he got like headhunted for Picard because he was certainly playing like kind of a similar space leader type figure. Yeah. yeah. But no, he didn't want to do it actually. He thought it was going to be kind of trashy and his uh his what agent could Alec Guinness him. Yeah. Well, and right? and his agent talked him into it and said, "Well, listen, you just got to do it for like a season or two. It'll be good money, blah blah blah." And then you know suddenly he's an icon, right? And he'll be famous forever for Picard. Well, yeah. that was when they didn't really realize that like kids would line 
line up for blocks to get the B-listest person off of a Star Trek show to sign their thing forever. And you can just make five grand a weekend doing that for the rest of your life, which is again. But the thing is, like a lot, a lot of the cast from the first the first season. Well, like that's why Tasha Yar got killed off, because she thought like, oh, this is going to be and this is going to run out pretty quick. I I don't want to get tied down to this thing. How many stories could you tell about space? Right, exactly. And Beverly Crusher too, which is why we didn't have Beverly Crusher, Gates McFadden, why we didn't have Beverly Crusher in season two and why she ended up coming back. She was like, oh shit, this is still a thing. I'm around. Okay. I heard actually that both of them were kicked off because of sexism. You know, I think there's differing stories. Well, who were they sexist against? Yeah, well, so the story I heard about Gates McFadden in particular is that, like, they really played her up to be, like, difficult to work with. And they had this sort of running thing where, like, her and hair and makeup were at each other's throats because, like, her hair kept falling flat and they couldn't get it to, like, stick under the lights and blah, 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 blah. There's, like, a whole, like, I'll send the article to you. It was a whole thing. Mm. I, I mean, I'm sure that there was some of that going on in the set. I know that there was a big blow up between Denise Crosby and Rick Berman of course because rick berman is the worst when when she was leaving the show he was incredibly shitty to her but you know i'm sure that that was a factor i know that denise crosby is on record of saying that she didn't think that it was going to become the phenomenon that it was and that that's why she wanted to go on and didn't want to get tied down to like a project that was going to consume all of her time for the next seven years and she wanted to have that freedom and gates mcfadden had like a movie commitment that she had made and was expecting to uh you know move on to other stuff too and neither of them thought that it was going to become the big phenomenon that it was. No, let's right. be fair. Hey, we're going to put you in these brightly colored space people uniforms and you're in like a communist intellectual navy. And then people right. are going to watch the shit out of this show. Like, why would that happen? Yeah. Right? Exactly. That doesn't. It's. <laughs> Y'all want to hear a cool Gates McFadden fact I just learned because I was Googling her? Always. Gates McFact, fact, fact, so, fact, fact, check. Yeah. It's time for a Gates McFadden. Is apparently her her full name is Cheryl Gates McFadden. And well, she's also from Cuyahoga Falls, which is a beautiful part of Ohio. And more importantly, the thing that caught my attention is she also does choreography. But when she's yeah. doing choreography, she goes by Cheryl McFadden. Yeah, she did. Um, I forget what it was. There was a major production that she did choreography for, which is why they ended up. She was actually more known as a choreographer than than an actor. But that's how they ended up working in her dancing to TNG. I was just thinking about that. The scene where she was teaching Data to dance. That was hilarious. <laughs> Unfortunately, they let those skills lapse and didn't really didn't really pick that up when she was doing a lot of aerobics with uh, Deanna Troy instead. So. Yeah. <laughs> Look rhythmic and natural. No, I can't. <laughs> Well, no, they look great. Oh, okay. It's not their fault. They didn't write the show. I will watch it too. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't say, oh, there's a graceful choreographer that scene specifically. <laughs> yeah. Listen, I would happily watch Gates McFadden and Marina Sirtis. Is that how you say it? Sirtis? Sirtis? Sirtis, uh, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I would happily watch Gates McFadden and Marina Sirtis writhe around in 80s era bodysuits whenever they want to show me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not mad about it. And you know, you gotta you gotta wonder, of all the open mic night talent shows that we saw on Next Generation specifically, how come we never had a dance recital? Nobody was doing like some interpretive dance shit. I think there was one episode, I think it was I think it was Next Generation, where everybody was kind of trapped in some kind of fantasy and like they had some ensign in a cargo bay that thought she was a ballerina and she was dancing around. You remember that? I do remember that one. That's the only other time that I remember dancing being like a central, it wasn't even a central, but like a theme that got put into. A, yeah. Do people not dance? Do people not dance in the future? Is is our gay-based communism going to be devoid of dancing? Because I don't like that idea. Look, we can't afford music. No, it's just that in the future, they know to hide their shame. 
<laughs> they are all quite academic. No, but there's not a lot of dancing in any of the other episodes, any of the other series. There's not a lot of dancing going on. Think about that. Mm. Now I've constructed in my mind instead a, a parallel universe crossover scene, which is the scene from The Big Lebowski where uh, the guy is, is asking The Big Lebowski for his rent, but it's Barkley. And he's like, hey, I finally got on open mic list for my, my dance cycle. I'd love it if you and Jordy <laughs> would come down and, and give me notes. <laughs> All right, thanks, Data. Anyway, all right, it's sorry. This is, no, but like it's perfect. So, I, like I love the idea of just like, oh yeah, no, like oh yeah, you would have a fucking weird ass dance cycle, but it'd be just you. And yeah, we'll go. Okay. So okay, <laughs> so excluding Worf because that's too easy. Which would be the funniest Star Trek character to see dancing? Quark. I think Quark has at least seen enough people have a good time as proprietor of a bar that he could mimic dancing moderately well. I mean, I'm yeah. just offering this up. I don't know. I feel like I don't know that he would be bad at dancing. However, you know who I think would be hilarious and is also from Deep Space Nine? Odo. Yeah, I was just thinking Odo, too. I cannot physically imagine Odo dancing. No, yeah. Odo dancing would be a series of abstract shapes undulating, which would be yes. beautiful, but not strictly speaking dance. It more of a screensaver. the interpretive dance gay space communism deserves. But the thing is, like, Odo is, for someone who is effectively a bucket of goo, he remarkably has the firmest stick up his ass of anybody in all of Star Trek. Like, you know, he had to work extra hard to manifest the stick, too. You know, like, the stick is up his ass because he built it there. It's <laughs> mental. It's in his heart, is really. The stick's not up his ass. It's in his heart. Yeah. Well, isn't um, that true for all of us, though? Oh, um, no, not everybody. It's also some up people, ass, Some actually. people have, have them actually literally up their ass. I know a guy that works <laughs> I've at I've really taken this conversation machine. off the rails. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, listen, we started out talking about David Lynch, so it's appropriate. Uh, that being said, so I think Rachel and I have just been watching Dune for the last 12 hours straight. So, uh, yeah. Corey, yep. what you, I yeah. know you've been, you've been kicking back through Voyager again. Yeah, I don't know what. All the what way is... to the end again. I know. I don't. I, I don't know what inspired this, but I just. I decided to double back on Voyager, and it was uh, Janeway doubling back in the finale on Voyager. Yeah, is probably what made you want to do it. <laughs> I don't know what it was, but I just. I did. I started watching Voyager again, like a few weeks ago, and I. I powered through it pretty quick, and I'm back into season seven. And and what's interesting is like it's my seventh time, I think, through the series. Maybe more. I. I don't know. I don't really keep track of the numbers like that, but it is it's one of the ones I've watched. More it gets than... embarrassing after the fifth one. Yeah, like, you know, well, you know. I've watched it a lot. Let's just leave I it have. at that. But I am, but I'm picking up on like themes and overarching storylines that I've you know haven't necessarily seen the thread of. And we're talking about some of those today. I think we're going to talk about uh, death rituals, and there's a bunch of that in Voyager. Weirdly enough. Well, speaking of death, Corey, you just fucking killed it with that segue. That is the topic of discussion today. Death, dying, loss, the mourning, all of that. Grief. How do you process all this? We've had a lot of it. We've got so many places to start. Yeah. Let's let and so yeah, and in light of our last episode about Star Trek being about feelings, this seems a nice place to hop into. I can throw us off some episodes to start because I want to do my, we, we'll start with my favorite one, which is what do you do with, with your remains when you die? Well, if you're a Ferengi, you sell them. Yeah. And this is a great, I mean, like, I love the hyper-capitalist approach to my own death and being aware of the price that my remains bring as a value of my life. And that being something that I should never know, but Cork does. And that's beautiful. Like, it's a beautiful, like, there's Brunt at the FCA. He's come to buy your remains. You got a whole, it's a whole thing. It's very exciting. I love their 
tradition. I really appreciate. I mean, it's a very materialist culture, but it's it is uh, the profoundness of death still strikes them, and the desire to reach forward and to have made one's mark in this way, where it's like, oh yeah, no, everybody lines up to buy a puck of my fucking ashes. Cool. That sounds way cooler than my thing, where I'm going to make y'all eat me surreptitiously at a wake. Nothing. I say, I you know, I hadn't really thought about it in this context before, but I kind of like the Ferengi tradition of being able to, you know, I guess I'm thinking about this because I lost my own dad recently and his desire was to be cremated and he has been. And, you know, he had a wish for like what we did with his ashes, which we've not yet carried out because we want to get the whole family together. And this plague has still got us separated by like half a planet. So, um, you know, we're waiting until we can get everybody together to do that. But, you know, just the idea idea of if I don't know some people might think this is morbid but the idea that you know someone's remains could be distributed to a larger group of people that might want to have like a memento I think that there's something kind of sweet about that maybe that's morbid I don't know well, it is death, so yes, it's going to be a little that. But I mean, we did that with a friend of mine that passed. We mixed the remains in with a uh, pottery glaze, and we gave people beads at the wake, which is like here, here's a little bit of this for you. You know, take take it with you. That's really I sweet. think that's beautiful. So, like, yeah, for it. yeah, yeah. I'm here for this. There's a service actually that will turn your remains into vinyl records. Oh wow! Oh, mine's going to just be a long fart. You just put it on as. <laughs> <laughs> just 90 minutes of farting. Yeah, well, so, like, my plan is I want, and I have to do some legwork while I'm alive for this to work out, but I want to get, like, an It's going to be hard track. to affect your wishes after the fact, yeah. Yes. Well, and also, I want to get an audio track. I'll get around to it. Okay. So I want it to be, like, a playlist of the songs that meant the most to me, and then the last track, I just want to be my heartbeat. That's way more wow. touching than my dumb bullshit. Yeah. And that's, wow. that's what I want my body to become. Is, and I want, you know, you can make like 10 discs out of it. And I want, you know, my 10 most important people to get a disc that has all my favorite songs in my heartbeat. Oh, wow. That would be incredible. And then you're trapped on a desert island with only Rachel's album as your, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It would still be a dope album because I got great taste in music. I've heard of stories where people like people who um, are like organ donors that the person who receives their heart, sometimes they, they will record the heartbeat and like put it into like a stuffed animal and give it to the family of the person oh, I'm gonna who start passed. sobbing in nope. a second That's now. like sending a picture of you fucking my ex-wife back to me. Like that sucks. Hell no. Like <laughs> I don't want to hear that. I, I, I don't know, man. Like if it was my kid. Yeah. Like when I see these no, stories of like, I, you know, I like can't. a like a young person who passed away and their organs went to someone and then their parents meet the person who got like it's always like incredibly moving i'm gonna start crying too oh my god i know i'm like already <laughs> crying i gotta hold my shit together we got like another hour and 15 minutes of this <laughs> i can keep doing fart stuff but it's gonna get tiring <laughs> if y'all can't hold this together um so all right there's other ways to die uh the vulcans <laughs> apparently have an immortal soul that you can just jam into someone else and then they can extract back out into a clone of your body making them functionally immortal high what I missed that one. When did that happen? That's Star Trek 2 and 3. An immortal oh, soul? Yeah, Spock jams yeah. his immortal soul, essentially, into Bones, who is then oh, choking the down. Yeah. Okay, yeah, the Katra. Got it. The yeah. Katra is just an, an, a real and immortal soul that simply exists, and you can just, if you clone up a fresh Spock, you can just jam it back in there, even if he goes through super puberty with Kirstie Alley. To be fair, I do go through super puberty every time I look at 1990s Kirstie Alley. <laughs> and and there is also that episode or that two-parter in in uh, enterprise where archer ends up with the katra of uh what's his name 
Yeah, yeah. Um, right. Yeah, I've forgotten the character, the name as well. But yes, that like apparent. So this is just a part of Vulcan culture. I was like, oh, you can just yeah. fucking shove it in there. Just put your soul into someone else's body. It'll rip him in half if somebody doesn't do the right ritual. But you could do that. There's a lot of actually. There's a bunch of episodes in Star Trek where they kind of explore the idea of someone's essence being kind of transferred to a different medium. Like there's obviously there's that. Yeah. You know, Picard, the new series, talks about that. But remember, like early on in TNG, there was that renowned scientist who was getting ready to die, and he basically took over Data. Like he died, and he transferred his consciousness to Data, and then they had to transfer it to the computer. Oh, because I was thinking, I thought you were thinking of the extremely sexist episode of TOS where a woman does that exact same thing to Kirk. Well, there's also that, yes. But no, I'm thinking but, of the, yeah, no, the it's one my, in... it's, yeah. yeah. There's a bunch of, it turns out you get these plots a couple of times around sometimes. But yeah, yeah. there's a lot of immortal souls and like various weird, like if, yeah, the ghost, if you like to use a ghost in the shell terminology, right? The ghost is a real thing for, for Star Trek. Right. And Data makes his own is one question. I think so, but that's a different issue. This might have been Discovery, possibly it was Discovery. I don't remember the exact context, but I think Say it was Say with discovery. confidence. That lying works. So Power into it. whichever episode it was, maybe it was a movie. I don't fucking remember. They were shooting their dead to this like asteroid belt where presumably their nope, consciousness- Nope, this is Voyager. And they make, a weird, they make a weird, uh, they yeah. make their own cocoon and then their energy yeah. joins and like the, yes. the ring of the planet. Yeah, it's Voyager. Yeah. It's early Voyager yeah. actually. yeah. That was a very cool one. I liked that one. Where cause I, I liked in particular the way they confronted this idea of the immortal soul, which I know was at least in some small part because you can't be too atheist on American television. But <laughs> I liked the way that they confronted it with this like, well, you know, maybe they did. Like there are metaphysical changes that happen when we die, you know, and you can think of that a lot of different ways. And I, I don't know, I, th I thought that was maybe the, the vision of death and to an extent the afterlife that most resonated with me personally. Personally. Yeah, there was like a whole conversation that Janeway had with Harry Kim at the end of that episode because he was the one who ended up accidentally getting transported to that society. He showed up in one of their death cocoon makers and like knocking on the coffin, let me out, let me out. <laughs> <laughs> so he ended up spending some time with those people and they were asking all these questions about their afterlife and he, he's like oh fuck i'm about to ruin your whole goddamn civilization don't i don't know i don't know anything so at first his reaction was like well there is no afterlife you just go to a cave and your body is just there and that's when janeway steps in at the end to say like no actually you know we don't know that it could be that they're afterlife because there there are these properties that exist in this this ring layer of the the asteroid belt of this was it was a, a ring yeah, there's like a planet. direct energy transfer from the cave right. where the bodies get dropped off to the exactly. ring, which I mean, sort of to me ruined. It still leads us down to the path of atheism because like, OK, what happens when you die? Well, now I can measure it if I have a fancy enough camera, which I'm down for. But it, to me, it reduces the metaphysicality of it to. Oh, no, sister. I mean, it's fine. I mean, it's also it's a weird way to, to duck out of that. Some of that conversation and tension, though, was to say, oh, no, we demonstrate. We we say we saw it. It's it's curious to have to resolve those for Trek, I think. I'm not sure, and you know, I consider myself an atheist, but I'm not sure that measurability would be proof of not God either. You know what I mean? Like, just because, like, you might be able to see the mechanisms of the machine doesn't necessarily mean there was no clockmaker, right? 
Well, it just means that there's no faith involved at that stage, right? Where like, no, no, they sure. just, those yeah. people could just be told, yes, they are in fact, that is in fact factual, but no one that, I mean, their basis for believing it was not that it factually occurs and is a measurable event, but that they believe, oh, well, I mean, it's not really explored mm -hmm. well enough what the origin of their belief is, but that it's true is accidental is sort of my rem remembering the way the yeah, episode yeah. resolves, which is, which I feel like is sort of the way you, a lot of writers cop out on having to resolve the tensions right because it's easy because it's 44 yeah. minutes we got to get out of here i gotta sell soap um for real i'm actually y'all remember that book i told you about in the last episode we recorded two like the lightning so i started reading the sequel which is called seven surrenders not three like the thunder no Ugh. Missed opportunity. Sorry. Um, and I hate to say this because like I'm starting to love this book, even though I hate the gender aspects of it, which is its weird place to be. But like one of the things they were talking about was like specifically godhood and what it is to be divine and what divinity like means. And one of the characters said, give or take, I cannot believe that which I do not understand or it, I have to understand something before I can believe it. So I, I don't know. I'm also not convinced that understanding contradicts belief either, but I guess it would contradict faith maybe but i don't know i'm not I sure know, like that whole uh i have to understand something for it to be true like like that that's like the worst kind of philosophy major crap though you know like like facts happen whether you get it or not yeah i don't think it's about like truth it's about belief right because belief doesn't necessarily reflect truth either i believe all kinds of things that are probably bullshit me too but but I think what you're speaking to is a comprehensibility. Like the theory, if it were true, yeah. it makes sense. Like it all lines up logically speaking. Like the idea, I mean, the idea that, uh, I mean, bringing about the end of the world would be good is a weird belief that a lot of people have. And oh boy, is it coherent, but golly, it has bad outcomes. Um, Amy, yeah. welcome back. I'm glad to see you dropped in from your conference. You, uh, you were taking the shuttlecraft to and fro from a conference, got made real small and then made real big again. I hope it wasn't too much of a delay. I'm pleased to announce that you are here and I hope ready to deliver this episode's segment of the Imzadi Report. Uh, how the, uh, cause we are talking about death, as you know, and you know who dies in that book? Fucking psychics. How's that? What do yeah. they do? What's the, yeah. Like, how does the feelings gang handle oh the dying? Well, in the first book, Loxana lays like a dying curse on Riker, which is pretty freaking dramatic, I have to say. That's a sweet way to go out, though. Honestly, girl boss. Now, I have a vague memory from my childhood of, of like one of the later books or possibly a different book where like a Betazoid funeral was pretty like a pretty casual celebration. So maybe maybe we'll get to a corroboration of that memory or I, I, I'm not sure. I do have a couple corrections, though. Let's see. It is Deanna that gets abducted, not Riker. But then Riker shows up, offers to offers himself in exchange. Then Deanna picks up a rock and beans the guy that kidnapped her. No, idiot. You're supposed to save me. <laughs> so, you know, it's pretty fucking awesome, actually. Yeah, and then they have this, like, hike through the jungle with um, breaks, if you know what I mean. Is this also nude, like the wedding? Or um, the death at least death At least some of the time. Uh, functionally nude, at least. <laughs> the good parts. That's what Amy means. All of the best parts of life happen naked. Well, maybe not all, but a lot. All, without exception. Every single one. If you're Betazoid and you're getting married naked, it counts then too. All of the best parts of life happen naked. <laughs> Showering, fucking rules. Baths, also fucking rule. Naked for those. Sex, you know, it's okay. But it, it, you do be naked for it. And uh, what, marriage, if your Betazoid is naked. Birth, naked. Death, Definitely naked. I'm dying naked, so help me. 
<laughs> Rachel's gonna be on her deathbed. She's like, somebody quick, take off my clothes. <laughs> I'll just be like, my my dying breath will be ripping off my like paper gown. <laughs> I must go nude. All the orderlies are like, yeah, she does that every week when she thinks she's going out. It's fine. I mean, like one day she'll be right and it'll be funny. But like this happens every Thursday. <laughs> That's not true. We won't have orderlies or medical care when we're old. You know what? Fun fact. It's Thursday. We're recording and I am naked right now. <laughs> we're on we're on video can confirm we're all naked it's fucking weird but it's the best way to get the audio quality uh, other ways to die you can ride a chip to stovocork i mean if you're fucking good at your job yeah that's true no, but Belanda found a way to kind of cheat the process there she rode the barge but she still came back well, it turns out you may be just having a lot of fucking serious brain trauma in a in a spaceship, but you may be experiencing your own afterlife and resolving your feelings about your mother. Who can say? Not us. Look, well, what Bolana hallucinates on DMT is between Bolana and God. Yeah, well, she's not the only person to experience a severe brain trauma death on a shuttlecraft in trouble with uh, grappling with the afterlife, because that also happens to Neelix. If you recall, Neelix has an accident on a shuttlecraft and actually dies and is brought back to life by Seven of Nine's nanoprobes. And he was dead for 18 hours at that point, which was like that's they had never. Lot. That's a lot. And and there had, you know, there there's a lot of talk in Star Trek about being able to ro- revive someone very shortly after death that that time frame seems to jump a lot like there's episodes in TNG where you got to do it within 30 minutes but there's uh, other episodes in different series where they can bring them back within a few hours we got this big dial marked peril and we just turn it you know to whatever number we need it to be to get the episode moving but sometimes it's within a few hours but but this was this particular time it had been 18 hours since he he physically died and there had never been someone brought back after that amount of time until like introduce magical Borg robots to reanimate his flesh to make that happen and, and his Scotty entire- and the transporter buffer for like 50 years or whatever yeah, that's just stasis yeah, that's not a revive that, yeah, he is really kept- a death yeah. yeah, he's kept in in fucking yeah. memory, which is like, that's a whole, we can come back around for that later. That's a whole other fucking crazy ass thing you're not supposed to do with a goddamn transporter. But Neelix had a whole like afterlife crisis was the crux of that story, which is, is tracks very similarly to Bolana and her afterlife crisis. And also to that other episode of Voyager where those people were expecting to go to their afterlife and see their whole family uh, waiting for them in this magical heaven-like place and found out that they were being deposited in a oh, cave right, they revive her. Yeah, and she's like, wait, I yeah. died. They're like, no, you're good. They're like, Yeah, but, uh, yeah. But, um, but Neelix, Neelix was expecting to be in the Great Forest and see his sisters who had all died in the war. And he was very upset about the fact that they weren't there and had this whole crisis of faith about it. And Chakotay had to come and, like, talk him back off the ledge from that. Well, because, like, his thing was that he just, it was nothingness, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. his death was oblivion. Right. Which, interestingly enough, a few seasons later, Seven has a very similar experience. Not that she dies, but there is a threat of her dying. She has a a malfunctioning cortical node. And because she's no longer linked to the collective, essentially, she's expecting to die. And she really struggles with that because the conversation that she ends up having with Bolana is that when a drone who is part of the collective dies, their experiences and their knowledge stays within the collective and effectively 
effectively keeps that part of them alive. It, it remains. It's a thing that stays behind. So it doesn't matter that their physical body is gone because their essence is still like alive and well within the collective. But because she's no longer part of the collective, once she dies, she's gone. And that, and she says, everything that I ever was and all that I've accomplished and experienced will no longer, it will be as if it never existed. And she's really struggling with that. You now, of course, they come up with a way to I save her. I am seven of nine, that. Borg of Borgs. Look upon my right. works, ye mighty, and despair. Right, right. But yeah, I mean, so there's there's a whole crisis of faith that she has about the, the possibility of, of oblivion and nothingness as well. And she takes it about as well as any human. You know, I, I wonder to what extent Roddenberry's Jewishness plays into the way death is presented in Star Trek. Because the Jewish understanding of death is not, like, the same as, like, the Christian understanding of death. Like, in uh, in the Jewish community, when somebody dies, we say, may their memory be a blessing, right? Because we have this sort of mm. focus on, like, you know, the sort of first and second death thing, right? The first death is when your body goes. The last death is when the last person that remembers you goes. And, you know, it's, it's much more of a focus on sort of living on through your legacy and through the love of your loved ones and, you know, through the changes you make in the world. Um, and it's it's much less about the sort of, like, you know, heaven afterlife situation. Like, a lot of Jews yeah. just don't think there is an afterlife at all. Hmm. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Judaism is not actually Christianity light. It's a completely different religion. What? What? <laughs> in spite of what the Republicans will tell you. Right. Look, yeah. oh, it really is wild how much the people with the new covenant keep focusing on the old one. You know, it's just, it's <laughs> theologically inconsistent. But you know, who you can blame for that Martin Luther. A lot of people <laughs> between. But I mean, Sola Scriptura really is the fucking crux of this. I'll just read the book all by myself with no one's help. That's not true of any book. Anyway, <laughs> let's try and move forward without me screaming about Christian theology for a little bit. <laughs> all right. Who else dies? I mean, everybody. But. So we got, we've done Borgs, Ferengi, uh, Vulcans, Betazoids. I mean, the bagpipes, which I really just need to emphasize, I I believe canonically happen at every Starfleet funeral is that someone plays the bagpipes, as Scotty does in Star Trek Wrath of Khan. But you remember that episode of TNG where Ensign Rowe and Geordi end up, they're cloaked because they get, they get hit with the, the, yeah, they get hit with the, the, the cloaking device from the Romulan ship. And they end up in like slightly the wrong phase. Right. So they're slightly out of phase and they're cloaked. And so everybody thinks that they died in some kind of transporter accident, but they're actually there and they're having to like go run around the ship and, and emit chroniton particles to be able to, to be detected. But Data plans a whole wake and he's he wants to plan like a like a memorial for the two of them because he was really close to Geordi and he wants to honor both of them. And so he plans this like what is described as an Irish wake and it's just they're all having a big fucking party. And that was actually really sweet. I, I thought Data did a great job. I appreciate that it seems like one of the only cultures that makes it all the way through to the future is Irish and only perhaps because <laughs> of the existence of Miles O'Brien. Maybe. I yeah. mean, like, I mean, that and like you get Melville made it to at least you know, a couple of centuries before that, at least to that point. But otherwise, yeah, what do we, yeah, like you're doing dunks about the Irish or whatever, but tell me that there are not hundreds and thousands of white supremacists who are way too obsessed with Greece right now. Yeah. <laughs> like... oh. oh, I want to credit an acquaintance, Kevin Baker. He who is uh, it's a what is it? He come up with a Greek to go place called Molon Leib. Come and take it's fucking it's the dumb fucking guns thing, but come and take them is this it is that, but it's a Greek, but they sell euros to go. 
that kind of rules, and I do want. Oh, it's so, yeah. it's so good. He studies uh, history of technology and stuff and Soviet uh, cybernetics. It's really he's a really fucking interesting dude. But that's cool as shit. When's he coming on the pod? When he wants to talk to anyone ever, that's not really his deal. But I'll I'll uh, I'll ping him. You know that's that- fair. Okay, so going back to death rituals for a minute. So one of the things that I I always thought was kind of weird about Star Trek is that they bury people in space by putting them into torpedo tubes and just shooting them out into nothingness. And those bodies go somewhere. At some point, like enough people had to have been buried in space that they're cluttering up somewhere. They get pulled in by gravity at some point. They're, They're continuing on a trajectory until they run into something or they get pulled into a gravity well. So something happens to those remains. Yeah. Another one of them Starfleet cans. Hit the ship again, Dave. We do get an answer to that in one of the Voyager episodes where there's a there's a, a race of aliens in the Delta Quadrant that they collect the discarded remains of deceased alien species and reanimate the body and convert them into their own species, which is how they procreate, which is very strange. They reanimate corpses and convert them. So there's a whole episode where someone who had died and was buried in space and shot out one of those torpedo tubes was, was collected and reanimated and converted and escaped and came back and tried to like reclaim her life. Ensign Lindsay Ballard tried to reclaim her life and become human again and and then ended up uh it was Kobali. It was the Kobali. That's who it was. And she couldn't. I mean like right yeah, they were like no she no this happens reach- to a lot of people before they finish their transition into being dead people like us. They're like no I'm going to go back right. and live with my life my life. And like nope you're not one of them anymore. You will become further from them every minute you're alive. And they're right. It's a weird yeah. Yeah. Just just like like so it's just kind of two parters to that which is like what happens to all the dead bodies that we're just firing out into space and isn't that weird to think about an alien species harvesting our remains or maybe it's not i'm not sure how i feel about that to be honest with you honestly i don't think that's any weirder than being an organ donor i maybe yeah it's just scaled up well so so how about a lower decks episode where you're like collecting the bodies and like putting them Uh. in in a decaying orbit into us into a, a, a star so I hate to be that guy, but I'm in a science at you a little no bit. No one who ever says that hates to be that guy. They love it. They're about to love I, doing what they do. You know, this one I might actually hate myself for a little bit because it's going to kind of ruin the mystique and the joke. But the truth is space is huge, y'all. There is so much space. There is so, so, so much space. For one, if something the size of one of those torpedoes was enough to significantly damage those ships, that would be its own huge problem, right? That's presumably why they developed shields in the first place. It was not, you know, for the purposes of war, but to protect from the many kinds of debris that are constantly floating around in space. But also, and this is the more important thing, space is so fucking huge that it doesn't matter. You can just go around it. It won't even be a big deal. Statistically, the chances that you're ever going to and hit it again are like literally astronomically low. Like it is so hard to comprehend the vastness and the just fundamental emptiness of space. Look, I don't disagree with you, but it is a fact that gravity does play a role. Gravity will grab some of those things. I mean, that's how oh, that, yeah, like yeah. stray comets and asteroids end up crashing into planets and killing the dinosaurs. Sure, in like, you know, a million billion years or whatever, but like, it's not likely or it's inevitable. Well, my thought is it's not likely, but let's not assume an even distribution either. Like, like these deaths happen in clusters. No, Wolf 358? 
is fucking littered with bodies, right? Wolf 360, Wolf 358, corpses. Yeah, yeah, and they probably happen near gravity wells already, and they happen in orbit of planets, you know? So you gotta shoot that shit on an escape trajectory, I guess, and then you're fine, but like, yeah, yeah, what if you miss? Oh, otherwise it's raining men. Yeah. I just, I don't think it's going to matter. I think that like something that size would almost certainly burn up in any atmosphere or it would float into, I think the most likely thing to happen to those bodies is they just float indefinitely to the point of, you know, functionally infinity or, you know, like I said, it's it's either never going to happen or it's inevitable, but there's no way of guessing at what point it will or will not occur, you know? Space big. Now, Searcher Spock does give us that those torpedo tubes can survive a re-entry and even a whole Genesis weapon because it was there. <laughs> I mean, like, it's, it's a pretty robust can, you know, that's all I'm saying, right? Like, it's, it's so it is a, its survivability is relatively high given what we put people in now, which are fucking mahogany boxes for whatever reason. Because we're assholes, that's why. Well, so, um, so, couple things, couple things. I mean, we know that, like, whole ass fucking rocks land gently without breaking the ice, you know? on frozen lakes and you know like an entry trajectory can be any any angle and like occasionally they land like an egg on a plate and it's it's remarkable but but i think that this is kind of accounted for in the canon actually is usually if people talk about it at all they're talking about it hitting an escape trajectory or burning up in an atmosphere or something like that they are like accounting for it slightly in in my dim dim memory This brings us to one of my favorite space gags, which comes out of Avenue 5, which is probably one of the funniest shows about space in a while. Uh, It's more of a cruise ship environment spaceship, but they do try and eject people who have died out in the sort of tube, kind of in the Star Trek kind of manner. But the tubes do not have adequate escape trajectory and then begin orbiting the ship so that everyone is constantly reminded by and can keep time by the corpses rotating around the ship. And it's like... Ah, chef's kiss of like the science of it of like yep that thing's too big it would catch that tiny object you didn't kick it out fast enough you just push it out the door and it just went all the way around and like here comes fucking dave again wait i love it i love it it's such it's a really good show it's a really good hugh laurie show it's a really good show about customer service and emotion like uh how the world really works versus how it's presented and that's all it's a lot of fun uh that being said it's it's a great guy like oh right you had to figure out the escape trajectory the first few times starfleet did it like Oh, 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 bunk, bunk, bunk. And you're just bunking it, bunking it forward as you at half impulse I mean, power across is like stuck in your deflector dish. Like, fuck. Really takes all the dignity out of this funeral. I feel like if they had the technology to create a warp drive, they can crunch the numbers to figure out how hard to shoot the torpedo out. Yeah, but you're in mourning. The first time you're not thinking about it, you're like, mm. oh, we're doing, right, we're just doing a sad thing. And then you're like, oh, like, you know, because like sometimes you do it just in a certain way where it's pit curvature of space does pull it away from you. But that first time you're like, oh, it has to be more than that. They just pop open the airlock. There was another race in Voyager that also tried to collect the dead to grow their species, but they had a different process. Whereas the Kobali, which is the ones we were just talking about, they waited until someone was do- was actually deceased and then took their remains and did what they did with it, which is fine. Like, okay, if that person's deceased, then you can have your thoughts about like Chakotay obviously has a lot of feelings about disturbing people's remains. But it's really a salvage operation at that point. It's it, not, but, yeah. 
yeah. so whatever. Like, you know, they're not using the body anymore. Like, it's fine. I agree. Right? Yeah, it's I, from a pure mechanical perspective. Yeah, you're just, you, it's used parts. But I don't remember the, I don't know if we got the name of this other race, but there was an episode where Janeway was injured very badly and she was on the verge of dying. And she like had this experience where she thought she was dead and she was walking around the ship and everybody was like planning her wake. And what it, it turned out, to, she was visited by someone that appeared as her father. Um, and he was trying to talk to her like, yeah, you know, this happened when I died too. And I, I visited you and he was trying to like coax her into the afterlife. But really what, what he was doing, he was an alien who was presenting as her father to convince her to give up and die so that they could have her body. You remember that? It just kind of fucked up. Which yeah. is so wild. I do. It really speaks to the, yeah, it's back, gets, touches back on the, like the soul effect that like, oh yeah, y'all have, you got them. They're real. There's a, your essence is something. Yeah. I think in this, this, one of the places Star Trek definitely lands is yeah, you are, a, you have an essence. There is some kind of soul ultimately, which is, I don't know, a very weird place. I think it's, a, that's a very weird place to land. I, something else I've been thinking about and we should be talking about when we talk about death, especially because it's kind of a, the leftist question, I guess, because this is ostensibly a political thinking podcast. But the right to die. Worf. I mean, like, Worf is paralyzed. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, and asked Riker to shank him one. And Riker's mm-hmm. like, no, I'm a big coward. Which, I mean, I, I don't know. I think that there is, uh, I think they really resolved that poorly in terms of an episode. Because, like, yeah, and it turns out magic surgery to fix him. But like, okay, but like six weeks later, if that hadn't worked, do we shank him now? Does he like, do we honor his wish? Right. What, what happened? And like, because we live in a world where your right to die is simply not respected, right? Like, we will kill you slowly but if you want to be medically put down in a well ugh, yeah that's a gross that's well, a that wrong is... term but you get the idea right like to do so therapeutically in a way where it's like yeah let's not drag your brain cancer out more grandma for yeah. example that was a more clear cut yeah. example with the Klingon culture, but that extends into other aspects of Klingon culture. If you remember in Deep Space Nine, you know, his brother wanted to commit rituals, sui- or actually not r- ritual suicide, but wanted to He wanted Worf a ritual murder, but it was essentially suicide. Yes, you kill it, yes. me to get Assisted save suicide. me from. Yeah, well, right. that's like Worf asked it from his brother, from Riker. It's the same ask. It's, yeah, it's Ex- the same Exactly, ritual. but he wasn't like, it, he wasn't looking to escape like a medical diagnosis that was going to make him less clean. He was looking to escape like, like shame and dishonor. His life was ultimately over. Yeah. Well, right. then they, like Julian Bashir's like, I don't want to do that. I'll give you a lobotomy. That's much more. That's <laughs> better. This is fine. <laughs> you know. And now here's some guy who is your his problem now. What? Yeah. But I mean, I think we've seen cultures among humans do that. Like that doesn't make it okay. Honor suicides. Well, but the thing is, like, I think that your sense that it's not okay is cultural, right? Well, I think it's just if you're not going to kill someone, if you're going to give them a lobotomy, but you won't kill. Like, if you're going to change their identity, erase their existence, and give them a lobotomy, you might as well murder them. Like, this is okay, the same act. Counterpoint, counterpoint. No. And I'm not, I'm obviously, here. I am a person who takes a lot of medicine for mental illness, right? But one of my symptoms is suicidal ideation and action. I've tried to kill myself a couple times. And I take these meds, they make the part of me that wants to die shut up. Right. Um, and, and, yeah. and so much of it is tied to shame for me because I'm neurodivergent, because I can't get this shit right, because I'm constantly alienating people and there must be something inherently wrong with me. Right. And obviously, I don't really think this. But those are like the thoughts. Right. That like there is an aspect of my ongoing lived experience where my default assumption is the world is a worse place for my presence in it. Right. Right. And the medicine I take is what makes that it, it never completely goes away, but it turns the volume down low enough that I can tolerate. 
curate it, right? I think the distinction there, Rachel, is that like you're still you when you take that medicine. It allows you to be more fully yourself without contending with those troubled thoughts. But, you know, I, and I know that this is problematic. I'm not convinced that's necessarily true. I, I don't, okay. and I don't mean it to say that my true self is depressed, but that there really isn't a true self to begin with. Like, self is a narrative. Maybe so, but I'm just, like, my problem with with what happened with Kern was that they took away his autonomy. Like, they made the decision for him to lobotomize him, essentially, to give him a new yeah. identity, and that stripped him of his autonomy, and that that's the part when I say that's not okay. That's, that's not okay. I agree with like, you there. Because it is functionally the same as the thing he asked for. Yeah, yeah, the ritual suicide thing is a thing that I can disagree with, that I can try to talk somebody out of, you know. I'm but super it, here for it, it. I just think it's a hard, it's a very difficult consent question to ask of everyone involved. But it's a thing exactly. that you could, in theory, do really reasonably and honorably. Yeah. Well, and I mean, that's the other thing, right? If somebody wants to kill themselves because they're not in their right mind, what is your medical responsibility? It is one of the few things you yeah. can be forced into a hospital for is suicidality. I don't know what the code is elsewhere, but in Georgia, it's code 1013. Uh, and physicians will literally say, oh, we're just going to 1013 them to mean they're going to lock you up in a hospital against your will until yeah. you're no longer at least willing to admit that you're going to try to kill yourself afterwards. Which is a super great way to make sure you get a lot of good reporting on that issue. Yeah, let's carefully yeah. define that distinction there. Because like, yeah, anyone who's been in the psych ward will kind of understand that one of its big functions is to create an environment that's like just unpleasant enough that if you can possibly, you'll act sane enough yes. to get out. Yeah, There was a really, really controversial case in the Netherlands a few years ago. I don't remember exactly how when, uh, how long ago it was, but I know it was several years ago at least, where a young woman in her early 20s was granted the legal right to an assisted suicide. She was There was nothing medically wrong with her. She was a victim of extreme sexual abuse, and she was suffering from just incredible mental and emotional trauma because of that, and she just didn't want to live with it anymore and she was granted I would the say right. that is something medically wrong like well, yes, but I mean, like, not not like a, you know, not like a, like a disease. It's not like she you... has no neural sheets and has, like, it's like, I mean, there are a lot of, like, far more debilitating things that we can say, like, will absolutely compromise your your quality of life in the same way. Right. But, but I, yeah, yeah. I, I think that these things are the same, is what I'm saying. Like, I don't think that you can meaningfully distinguish between neurological pain in your peripheral nervous system and neurological pain in your central nervous system. It's all processed by the same structure of your brain. Like, there is a part of your brain that says, ow, this hurts. That's, that's ultimately where the courts came down. And, and it was controversial because, you know, people think of assisted suicide as people that have untreatable, like, health diseases that are going to result in a, a long, painful death. And so we can give them a quick, painless one instead and alleviate their suffering. But she was able to, to demonstrate, like, yeah, I'm incredibly suffering all the time and I don't want to suffer anymore. And so she was granted that. So, like, I, I don't know, like, that to me is the closest current life analogy to the Klingon rituals and I support the court decision and, and and her decision her right to make that decision and I don't think that if yeah. in in this in this context if someone had said like okay well you don't want to live with these memories anymore we have a medical procedure that can take those memories away from you and make you forget who you are and then you just go on to have a different life but we don't let you make that decision we just do it for you while you're asleep like that's wrong 
On the other hand, though, if they do that to you, do you not also die? Like, if your body carries on, but the thing that makes you who you are is gone, are you still alive, right? Like, do we consider somebody in a vegetative state? Is that person, the person, you know, that they were before they were in a vegetative state still alive? Why do we call it brain dead? Yeah. Well, to me, the idea is that it's the hypocrisy of Bashir's response, which is, no, doing a ritual murder-suicide is wrong. But what I've got, right, well, I want to try this and you're like dude that's wild you are some mangle ass shit dude calm down frontier medicine my entire ass like but then he wouldn't do the same thing for for vedic barail when barail needed like you know artificial brain you know importation my brain he's like no i can't he's got religious that would be unethical like you literally just lobotomized somebody like minutes ago I fucking hate Julian Bashir, and I always have, to be clear. This is not about me, uh, like, defending Bashir or any of his decisions, each one of which is terrible all of the time because he's terrible. Fuck boy alert. Fuck boy well, alert. This is the kind of shit Libby failure of Star Trek sometimes, is, is that, that hand, hand-wringy kind of, like, it's okay if we medicalize it in the case of Kern, and it's okay to not do it because of religion, but it's a religion I respect or whatever you know it's not you know it's not a violent religion so we have to respect it or whatever you know like just uh doesn't it just feel like like the the 90s shitlib mantra well it is network television again we're getting back to it is a bunch of writers coming together to write network television they're bringing whatever story they're trying to tell to it that being said there were a lot of controls on this program about what it was supposed to be about and how it was supposed to go so yeah that fuck rick berman has been a recurring theme and we can leave it it's here too you know i I think though that distinction is kind of why I wanted to circle back and talk about ritual suicide in real world human cultures, you know, not like imagined ones, right? But like seppuku is like a ritual suicide that was considered highly honorable, right? It, it was considered a way to, you know, atone if you fucked up so badly that for whatever reason, the world actually would be better without you in it. Um, If you betrayed somebody so deeply that like you could no longer live with yourself, right? I mean, giving people an honorable out like that is a good idea, right? Yeah, you know, like, yeah. Hey, you fucked up real fucking bad. Here's how you can make it better. Yes. And I mean, I, I, you know, I personally, I find the concept of seppuku like horrifying. Like I could not imagine doing that to myself and I've tried to kill myself. But I, but I do think that like we should always, when we talk about these kinds of decisions, especially within different cultures, kind of approach it anthropologically, you know, and try and sort of remove our own cultural biases from how we evaluate it. So like, and I I think that's what makes the thing Bashir did so shitty, right? Is that Bashir was not engaging with anthropologically. Bashir was engaging with it from, you know, his own very narrow fuckboy perspective. Yeah, I'll only respect the cultures I understand. You would think being someone who was genetically engineered, he would have had a little more sympathy for, you know. Right, God. You know, but there was, um, there's also really big episode in TNG that also deals with a kind of a form of ritual suicide. And that was the, I can't remember the name of the race, but it was, it was the one that Luxana fell in love with. The guy that, you know, when you reach a certain age that they, uh, I think age of 60 or something, that they kill themselves so that they're not a burden on their family. And she thought that was horrifying, but, you know, it was really important to their culture that would be wild to live in a society where stuff like that was even considered by people to oh never mind 
Yeah. And then he even talked about like why they do it that way. And he said, well, before we started to do this, our elderly people used to like suffer uh, horribly and didn't have people to take care of them and became a, a big burden on their family and were in pain. And like it's called they, economic drag. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it, it's called like being old in capitalism is essentially what that what he was well, describing. And this is a problem every society has to deal with, which yeah. is like, OK, you have reached a point where you can make your members live long than their necessarily than their individual productive capacities. This is a real problem of just expansive medical care being available, right? And just in general, like, oh, well, we live longer. And sometimes you live so long, your hands don't work anymore and you can't do the thing you did to help out. Now what? You want to know well, uh, a fun fact, actually? Sure. If you remove infant deaths and mortality from childbirth from the metrics, human lifespan's been about the same forever, actually. Okay, well, even still, our hands consistently break. Uh, what what fucks with human lifespan? Like, in ye olden times, when the lifespan was like 20 years, is because a shitload of people were dying as, like, babies. Well, also, dental care. Like yeah. Lots of people died from jaw infections, you know? Yeah, but even in the absence of dental care, like, people were still living like 60, 70 years. Like, we have long lifespans. It's probably part of how we managed to pull this shit off. No, no. Well, I mean, at, at this point, all of my grandparents outlived that by a while and still died of got weird degenerative brain shit that probably was related to them huffing lead paint and gasoline their whole lives. We'll find out later. That being said, there's still something a society like, okay, cool. You just can't work. You can't see, you can't walk, or your hands don't work, and you can no longer participate in the activities that make the thing go. What then does a society do with people? Do you treat them as elders well, and have them teach? Do you, or do you have them commit ritual yeah, suicide yeah. so they're not a burden? Uh, there's version. There's uh, well, if you're me and your hands stop working, you know, decades earlier than most people because you have a degenerative genetic condition. Actually, I just languish for the most part. I make a podcast, and that's about it. I, I lay in bed a lot. Like I lay in bed a lot, and and I languish and I yell online. Which is less cool than it sounds, folks. He's not making a happy face. Yeah, yeah. But that, that's the thing. It's like disabled people have always been around. This isn't like a new thing, right? The way we have engaged with disability and with being an elder, with being elderly and disability from age or whatever set of circumstances has changed because of capitalism, <laughs> like because of the industrial model. That, that sort of sense that like there should be a problem with somebody living past their usefulness or living outside of like material usefulness is itself very capitalistic. Well, and, and there's sort of another thing this gets at, which is, you know, in my case, I was languishing. I was not really able to do much work anymore. And once I got on H HRT, it was all changed. You know, I got healthy. I'm working full time again and I'm like productive again. And yeah. so like society has to like decide that that's something they want to do or otherwise I'm a drag, you know? Yeah. I went through a very similar thing with, you know, I've talked about my weight loss and the fact that I, I had so many problems with my back um, that were exacerbated by the weight gain that I had accumulated over a number of years and had reached the point, like it slowly diminished my mobility over the course of several years. And you just lose a little bit, you lose a little bit, you lose a little bit, and you don't really realize how much it's taking from you until just one day you, you realize you're not doing any other thing. Like I, one day I realized like I hadn't stood in the kitchen and cooked a meal in like six months because I couldn't stand up 
for that long. And it wasn't until I got the operation and all the issues I had after that and like started to recover and was actually like able to stand and walk without crushing pain that made me want to die that I suddenly realized like, oh, holy shit, I can do stuff again. Like I actually can go to the grocery store and shop for things that I need and I can go for a walk and I can stand up and cook a meal and not want to die. You don't even realize how much of your life is being stolen from you until, I don't know, you just have time to sit back and reflect on it. And I lost a lot of time. Like I was still going to work because I had to earn a paycheck, but like I was in incredible amounts of pain and not, not doing good. And I was, I had lost a lot of things in that time. Yeah, I had gotten to like barely able to some days take the dog on like a half mile walk, you know, maybe a little longer to like, oh, I think I'll walk five miles today, you know, before I do anything else. Just Mm -hmm. because, you know, and it's, it's remarkable, like how a lot of us just need a little change, you know, a little change that maybe takes something, you know, we don't understand ourselves. Yep. I think often about this, actually, because it's kind of, I'm going to cry while I talk about this. I'm just going to warn you ahead of time, brace for impact. I think often about this because it is part of coming to terms with my condition. You know, like, uh, there is no magic bullet. You know, I'm not going to get better. This is degenerative. And so these little things you talk about losing, you know, for me, it's like, it is this struggle of trying to hold on to them as long as I can, knowing that eventually I'm going to lose them and it's going to be way before the rest of my body dies. Um, yeah. And it's it's kind of a, it's really, it has changed my perspective on mortality as such, you know, because death is so much more than the moment your brain stops firing, you know, yeah. or the moment your heart stops beating. Death is this ongoing process of our entire lives. You know, yeah. we we are all dying right now. Birth is itself an inevitability to death. And I've, I've really tried to reframe the way I think about these things as sort of that, that process of acceptance, you know, of like, well, life is pain. <laughs> life is pain for everybody, right? Unless you're like one of the worst people on the planet and you've never experienced pain, in which case you're just awful to everybody all of the time because you need suffering to be a good person i think Uh, at least a little bit you need to know suffering to truly become good to truly seek to prevent suffering in the other but also like finding new ways and reasons to make being alive worth something you know i've developed this kind of new flexibility about things that i never used to have i was so type a like before before i hit my 30s and it got really bad and you know like daily tasks started being a struggle you know um i was so type a i had to do everything myself i had to do it perfectly like (laughs) and now you know i i've reached this different place where, you know, like I, I pay somebody to do my laundry for me because mm-hmm. it's not worth it to lose the rest of the day to folding a single basket of laundry because yeah. of the pain afterwards, you know? And instead of feeling ashamed or deficient or inadequate because I can't do my laundry, what the fuck is wrong with me? I pay somebody to do it for me. And I spend that, you know, six hours that I would have spent 30 minutes folding laundry and five and a half hours in pain doing something that like I find meaningful instead. But one of the struggles that I deal with every day, and this kind of ties us back into what I was talking about, these sort of very modern capitalistic ideas of usefulness. One of the things I struggle with is that sense of being a burden, you know, of of being insufficient, of being unproductive. And I think that's a big part of what drove me to the left, actually, was like coming to terms with my own disability and realizing like, oh shit, there's nothing out here if you can't do it yourself, like you're fucked. And you know, I've been been very lucky, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky to have been born 
into an upper middle class family who could keep me alive and, you know, keep me with healthcare. I'm very lucky to have landed with a partner who has a job that can support our family of three by himself, you know? But I think every fucking day about where I would be if I didn't have that luck. And the answer is probably just dead, honestly. I probably would have actually offed myself, you know, and I would have committed to that one. So I don't know. I, I think it would be an incomplete vision of what death is, not just in Star Trek, but like as such, to view it as a single moment and not sort of an ongoing process. Does that make sense? It does. And you know, Rachel, what you're talking about, I I'm feeling it so much because I've I've been in that position, but I was fortunate to be able to get some treatment that would allow me to get past it. And I I can only imagine like the inevitability that you're describing um, Mm -hmm. and how that weighs on you. But that is what we love so much about this show and the world that it promises us because Star Trek consistently reinforces the idea that people are inherently valuable, worthwhile, and entitled to full and meaningful lives regardless of whether or not they are producing something that yeah. that just their existence is worth a lot that is so central to the ethos of Star Trek and it is I think one of the, the biggest things that draws all of us to love the show as much as we do and to try and build the future that it describes for us absolutely the scarcest resource in the universe is not gold it's not platinum you know it's not water it's life there is nothing more precious than life and I think we're right to point out that it's just this bullshit, you know, kind of individualism you have to assume under capitalism that makes this a problem. I don't understand why I'm capable of producing abundance if it's not to, like, help others. Right, you know? right, like, like, right. I have this gift, you know? Yeah. And it's like, yeah. it doesn't come through in this world. And that's where I came come to the left from, you know? Yeah, I forget who I'm quoting here, but somebody said, you know, you can tell where human society started with the first healed femur. I want to say Margaret Atwood. Maybe. Probably be maybe wrong, but. I don't know, but I love that sentiment, right? I don't know, but yes. You can say, like, the human society as such, as it is recognizable, began when somebody got an injury that should have killed them, and the people who loved them kept them alive. Kept them alive while they healed, which is a huge task, right? Because if you're healing a femur, that's months and months and months. We walk around every day. That's the whole thing we do. We wander, yeah. Well, yeah. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. So that means somebody was, like, literally carrying you and bathing you and, like, all of these just incredible things you would have had to have been doing for each other to have somebody survive, right? Hunting food. (laughs) Yes, for you, right? And, you know, so when, like, asshole, like, bottom-right libertarians talk about, like, Hobbes's state of nature or whatever, that's always where my mind goes. It's like, nah, dude, we are intrinsically social creatures because that's adaptive. Having the kind of heart and soul, and I'm using it sort of metaphorically here, but I think it's useful to really go out of your way to keep somebody alive because you love them. That is part of what makes humans so special. I mean, we, we're uniquely suited for this, too, because, you know, our long lives and the, the way our lives are positioned in our reproductive cycle, like, we're kind of built to have this time when we're totally focused on raising a new human. But then after that, there's this whole other time when you're just like, oh, look, 
I'm, you know, an experienced hunter-gatherer, and there's no one I need to get calories for. So I'm getting calories for the group. I'll write a paper about physics. You know? Or yeah, yeah, I'll figure out a better way to carry the calories we're gathering or whatever. Well, and collective wisdom, right? Experiences, language, all of these things benefit so greatly from that longevity. What if I had a basket for grain that was so big it could traverse between the stars? How tight would I need to weave it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, and you know, you're talking about other people. I'll wrap up my own personal sob story with a quick anecdote that I think is actually really optimistic as I recently found an incredible massage therapist who was my friend. I've been friends with her forever. I just didn't know she was this good at massages. And so I've started seeing her, you know, once a week and it has been life-changing. Like my Mm. kid's birthday party was a couple weekends ago and I was vertical, actively taking care of children, doing a lot of like bending and moving and stuff like that for like five or six hours and had no pain and it was like the first time I'd been vertical that long without pain in years it was like I just about cried when I realized it you know so like I I think even within the sort of endless decay towards death like it's not linear you know like it doesn't only get worse and there are reasons to live regardless Oh, I'll just pop in here with buy the dip on death. It gets better. Um, it bounces <laughs> back. Well, like life is worth it, you know, like and leading us back to the trail. We I wandered us off of real quick with that anecdote, like that longevity, that shared history, like the ability to take care of each other, like all of that is all part of that same beautiful process of dying. Right. We reproduce yeah. to avoid death. We share our stories with each other to avoid death. We write books to avoid death. Everything we do is about sort of raging against against this inevitability. The metaphor that we are oxidizing and constantly on fire in a chemical sense is wonderful in that way. We're like, oh, right, your, con- your skin yeah. is constantly like chemically reacting to the oxygen. You are burning, mm-hmm. but just a little, just in, like not enough, to, <laughs> but like enough. Yeah, it's magical. I don't know if, if I brought this up before, but do y'all think like the longevity has anything to do with like sort of the rapid evolution towards the end there? Like, you know, modern humans emerge so rapidly. Is that because we started to live long enough to see each other grow up and go, ooh, don't, don't hang around with that boy. No, thank you. Ah. You know, maladaptive. We're just no. We're a maladaptive stream of primate, right? You give them too much cortex, they get too weird, and then you, they don't make it. That it's how you crash a planet. Yeah, but we super rapidly decreased sexual dimorphism and increased like our ability to cooperate. Yeah. I didn't realize sexual dimorphism happened around that or that it decreased around yeah. that. That's cool. Oh yeah, That's we're neat. like the least sexually dimorphic branch of the primates. Neat. Interesting. That's very cool. Yeah, right? That's super it cool. It set off the jargon alert, but I don't think we have time to unpack <laughs> that whole thing. For, Sexual I mean, dimorphism. Difference between sexes. <laughs> it is physiological, typically visible differences between sexes. Like yeah. It implies that you can tell by there looking that they're different. Secondary sex characteristic. Yeah. Sorry, I come from the legal perspective where we say per os or anum for sodomy because everybody speaks Latin. Um, <laughs> nobody speaks Latin. So yeah, we know that's not the yeah, that's not the terms we use for the bits in my specialty area. Uh, that being said, uh, oh, so uh, uh, there's one more, right? Uh, there's a couple more before we get to our uh, very odd conclusory game sort of restaurant at the end of the universe deal here. But uh, one of the que- uh, the trill, the krill, the one, you know, the ones trill. with the cat in their abdomen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, there's a way to live through survive death is be yeah. someone's annoying ghost in their mind that like one of them's a murderer. 
Except that that only applies to a portion of their society. Like most Trill don't actually get to have a symbiont. I don't know if you've heard about Calvinism, (laughs) but that may be happening here too. Oh God, Trill is like a Calvinist allegory? No, well, because there's a way to, I mean, I don't know. Are you elect? Are you born ready for- It's a trans-Calvinist allegory. Or do they sort of train the best of them to have them? It's a weird, like, yeah, I don't know. That being said, you're right. Only some of them live forever. (laughs) You were always a friend of Kirill. No, I, I like the idea of the fact that your your memories and your experiences get carried on to subsequent life. But yeah, it, it is kind of weird that it only applies to some of them. There's a limited supply of symbionts. And I apologize to listeners who may have thought that I was kidding when I said we'll only won't yell about theology for a little while earlier because <laughs> we did it again. Yeah. So no, that's uh, that's been a pretty fun exploration of death in the universe. I guess the other ones we got are Q and the wormhole aliens or the prophets, if you will, which really just speak to that JRPGs are correct and that you can, if you try, kill God. <laughs> Not saying you should, just saying you it could happen. It is a thing that the Star Trek universe allows for. Uh, also, Star Trek Five. Before we get into wormhole Jesus and stuff, have we gone into the Cardassian death rituals yet? What is the Cardassian death ritual? They like sit down and tell all their secrets in this like oh, yeah. marathon talk session. Oh, like, that's right. Garak and his dad yeah. both did, or the yeah, they both ostensibly did this. Does that count as a death ritual? I guess it does. I mean, yeah, you yeah. got secrets. You got they got you got to make sure they go somewhere. Otherwise, how will anyone know you kept them? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I remembered it because we were talking about you know like the process of dying, you know, and mm. that's that's like sort of this open acknowledgement of that, you know. So what happens to Cardassians that like die unexpectedly? Like they don't get the chance to do that. That's fucked up. And it only works if you have like a prolonged illness. But they also have sort of a very militaristic culture where dying in battle is almost dying in battle is almost always given some kind of special pass because you're doing something righteous for the what because every society has to have some way to justify war. So maybe maybe what Cardassians do before they go into battle, instead of recording a letter to their loved ones to be delivered in case they die, they're recording all their secrets. <laughs> I like it. You got a little scroll on you that if like when you go yeah. around collect, they're just, it's just there and someone could pick it up and read it. And it's a it's an option. You could press play yeah. on the little stick. I took a poop in the urinal. I got the impression that like as long as you got started and kept talking till you died, it was like you did it. Oh, so like as I'm laying there bleeding out in space, I just got to start whispering secrets and just like thinking about all the you know, things I would say well, about this. If I remember correctly about the the one with Kara specifically, it's it's not about like, you know, the process of just carrying on your memories and your experiences, but it's I'm literally sharing tactical information that you're going to need to exact revenge on our family's enemies. <laughs> that's really what that's all Yeah, about. there's like a filial continuation continuity kind of um right. aspect to it too so the code on their gate is pound three two five five anyway they work 8 a.m 7 p.m tuesday through sunday you'll want to make sure you don't drive up in this kind of car because nobody in that neighborhood even flies that kind of ship anymore so yeah i like this a lot um oh that's you know the cardassians i think have just taken my like yeah we want to play favorites here uh because the other option i have is pick your favorite red shirt death and i definitely would like to talk about that a little bit here too if we want to because the worst ways to die in starfleet are the dumbest and stupidest ways so think about those while we also consider ranking the deaths you've heard 
weird and sort of where do you want how do you want to end up i kind of i kind of like the cardassian approach now having having been refreshed on it because oh yeah here is my secrets and here is how you can use them to defeat our enemies that is it that is what you need to be taken care of i like the ferengi aspect merchandising yeah i think uh going out in a torpedo sounds great honestly heck yeah with or without being a reanimated corpse Ooh. <laughs> Um, I don't believe I'll care after that. <laughs> well, she seemed to, she, she, canonically. I mean, she do, remembered. That's just yeah. that guy who came to collect her was like, uh, this happens a lot. That's why we try not to let yeah. him run away. Cause it's like, then you, you eventually this. Yeah. I mean, she, that was the fucked up part is that she remembered her previous life. I think it'd be one thing if you didn't remember anything about who you were before you died, but she remembered who she was and wanted to go back to it. Yeah. That creeps out. That would be a lot of psychological trauma to process. I think. Yeah. So tube, no pickup. Gotcha. <laughs> no pickup, no Katra. Pick, gotcha. <laughs> you know, if the thing I said sort of earlier on slash at the beginning about wanting my like ashes to be pressed into records is to sort of speak for how I would probably approach this in Star Trek universe, I think make like a hyper realistic holodeck program of me and nuke my body. I don't give a shit. So the Tasha Yar approach. <laughs> yeah, mm. yeah. I like it. Are you sure you don't want to be made into records and then nailed to a bunch of satellites to become 10 V'gers to return back to Earth and squash <laughs> us into little bits? You know? <laughs> it's an option. We'll leave it on the table for later. It's always time to amend our wills. It's when either we... that or Stovacor. Oh, yeah. Because you know what? It turns out the Rainbow Bridge, very weirdly been taken over by dogs and cats and remarkably few yeah. Vikings making it up there these days, which is probably nice for all of them up there. They're like, oh, cool, a turtle. Um, <laughs> No, the Rainbow Bridge shit is weird. All right, so uh, I gave you a little bit of time to think about it while we mulled through the rest. What's your red shirt, Death Gang? That's our intrepid, our intrepid explorers died. How'd it go down for us? Man. I know. Probably something really goofy and absurd. Okay, so I posted on Twitter about this a while back. Nice. So you got, yo, you got data. There's a TOS episode. <laughs> I don't remember what it's called. It's like the second one or something. Third one. I don't know. It's man trap. I think it's called. It's, it's terrible. It's okay. Listeners are yelling at their things now. Yeah. Yeah. Please, please stop yelling at your phone. It has sensitive hearing <laughs> anyway. But yeah, this, this one like very hunky red shirt gets destroyed by this entity that keeps impersonating people you've loved in the past. It's pretty rough. That's it. That is damaging. That is a very psychologically damaging way to get redshirted, too, and, like, unexpectedly just not that sci-fi either. And they get, like, completely desiccated, you know? It's it's ugly. Yeah. That's... I think I like the, uh, the TNG version of the TOS Naked Time episode where everybody basically gets freakishly happy and starts having sex, and then they die. <laughs> like, I think that's a good way to go. Solid choice. I'm going to go in the same direction and I'm going to die from whatever happens when you play that fucking video game where you put the little disc into the, uh, into yeah. the, into the tube and yeah. Will, yeah, Crush, Will West Crusher shows up. It's like, hey, why is everyone super addicted to fucking Farmville? What's uh, happening? <laughs> Death by bejeweled addiction. Death by candy crush. God. Um, oh, I mean, it beats safety protocols switched off and got impaled by. Yeah, right. That's an option. Probably some kind of weird space STD, honestly. A space TD. Of like course. If, I, if I am to stay in character, it'll be a space TD. Which, okay, can we talk about that for a second? Because this comes well, we up in Voyager. We cannot talk about it for an entire episode later but on. I'm but Tom yeah, we can, do a, we can do a preview of that now. Yeah. Not Tom. 
it was Trip in Enterprise that got pregnant. Right, the time Trip gets pregnant? No, so in TOS and in TNG, both Kirk and Riker just run around having all kinds of crazy sex with all kinds of crazy aliens, and nobody's even thinking twice about it. It's just like, hey, who am I fucking this week, right? There are frogs on this planet that will kill you if you lick them. Right, exactly. And they're just running around like, what do you know that, that moves? The face hole. What do you think that lady does with her face? Do you know? Did you read the file, Kirk? No, that's her butt. It's fine, but you shouldn't put your mouth there. But then we get to Voyager and Harry Kim gets busy with a with an alien that he meets and he has this like whole dressing down from the doctor and from Janeway all about like how fucking dare you you're supposed to have a permission slip we're supposed to have like medical clearance for you to go and get freaky like you want to tell me Riker was doing that every time no of course he wasn't and then there's even a second episode later on in Voyager when like they they have that Klingon ship that boards Voyager and like they think Belana Torres is there is that her her daughter is going to be their savior, their messiah. A Neelix sexually satisfies a Klingon woman? Before that, though, that same Klingon woman was trying to get with Harry Kim, and he was running away from her. So he goes to the doctor to get help, and the doctor says, well, your options are either to mate her or kill her. And since you can't kill her, like, here's permission. I'm giving you a permission slip to go and have sex with a Klingon. What in the fuck? Like, why does, why why did they put all these, like, barriers on Harry Kim when Will Riker's literally fucking anything that walks in his vicinity? Hey, it's okay if you medicalize it. <laughs> Maybe Riker is using barriers. Did you ever think of that? like they just didn't put any space condoms on voyager because it was supposed to be a like a short reconnaissance and combat mission it just was not full of space yeah, condoms anyway we have to wrap this up because yeah. there is a whole other episode to talk about <laughs> stds in space the std and sexuality episode of gay space communism is and i know that it's going to sound weird when i say this coming but right now we have yes. to conclude this particular episode about death by killing it on the close transition, which I just uh. did. That's why you can find me at hashtag subtext on Twitter. You can find the show at at Gay Space Communism. And then everyone else has stuff and the show has plugs. Those things happen now. Hi, y'all. Um, I'm Amy Hassel. It's uh, Hassel on Twitter. Uh, Hassel in <laughs> real life. Is four A's. <laughs> uh, love y'all. All right, I'm Corey. You can find me on Twitter at CM Archibald. I'm Rachel. I have reverted to my proper state of Hegelian versus Predator on Twitter now that they're no longer sending the fuzz after me. And if you want my ad, it's Punished Rachel K. And I am Reach Rachel Khan everywhere else. If you love this show, you can go to at Gay Spacecast on Twitter. You can find a whole bunch of other awesome shows like this one on the Not Safe Media Network, which is notsafemedia.com. If you want to give us money through Not Safe Media, through this network, which is glorious and righteous and produces such wonderful shows as this, Hot Girl agenda and sentai truther club you can go to patreon.com slash not safe i think that's everything i think i hit all of them actually it was very fluid i also killed it this time well speaking of killing it space the rich space the rich space the rich y'all space the rich but like not in the little tube just like naked yeah just like straight out the airlock